You've tuned into the podcast of the voice of the narrated Puritan. This is a class on an analysis of Christian experience and assurance of salvation. Ironically, today, if there's anything that I've talked about so far in these classes, this is the one that's probably going to erode assurance of some people. We've discussed in this class a book, a treatise on the religious affections by Jonathan Edwards, and I explained that the first part of the book, part one, are those 12 signs that may neither prove nor disprove that a person has been born again. And the evidences are what Jonathan Edwards calls signs. Let me read a couple of those before I read the part in part three that I want to get to. There are 12 signs that neither prove nor disprove that a person has been brought from death unto life. The governing disposition, that means it affected the affections, the inclination, or the will, and enlightened the mind. And some of these are kind of surprising if a person has never read them. I'll just read a couple of the chapter titles. Did a person that has his affections in Christianity or religious affections very great? Are they raised very high as no certain sign? Did they have great effects on the body as no sign? Did their affections cause those who have them to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of the things of religion? Is no sign that persons did not excite them of their own contrivance and by their own strength. Is no positive sign that they come with texts of scripture. In other words, scriptures are coming to your mind one after another remarkably, but that's no positive sign that there is an appearance of love to them. Is no sign. But as I analyze Jonathan Edwards' work, and I have for years, I almost want to say. You almost would need to have the highest assurance of the reality of your faith before you could even apply these signs to see if you've been born again. And so, that's how this paragraph makes sense. No such signs, or no such evidences, or no such things that you feel or you see within yourself are going to be expected that shall be sufficient to enable those saints certainly to discern their own good state who are very low in grace, or such as have much departed from God, we would say in a state of spiritual declension or a state of backsliding, they've much departed from God and are fallen into a dead, carnal, and unchristian frame. He says it isn't agreeable to God's design that those should know their own good state, nor is it desirable that they should, but on the contrary, every way best that they should not, while they are in a backslidden, state in a state of declension and he says we have reason to thank god that he has made no provision that such should certainly know the state that they are in any other way than by first coming out of the ill frame and way that they are in indeed it is not properly through the defect of the signs given in the word of god that every saint living whether strong or weak or those who are in a bad spiritual frame as well as others cannot certainly know their good state by them for the rules in themselves are certain and infallible and every saint has or has had those things in himself which are sure evidences of grace for every even the least act of grace is so but it is through his defect to whom the signs are given there is a twofold defect in that saint who is very low in grace or in an ill frame which makes it impossible for him to know certainly that he has true grace by the best signs and rules which can be given him, end quote. Well, if that's true in just 
the basic signs, this is going to be a little bit harder to discern. And as I was studying this again yesterday, that is a single book that I've been studying in the last year or so called The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded by John Owen. When you go in to examine the thoughts about doctrine, Christian experience, theology proper, the doctrine of Christ, and so on, do your thoughts about them arise from a new living principle within you, the Holy Spirit residing in you? Or can such thoughts come to your mind by other ways, by other means? And that's what I want to get into. But I was having a conversation with my wife, and there's no way I could say these things and not appear censorious. But I told her the fact of the matter is, I am afraid. And there's always an element in that that you have to heed, you have to pay attention to, uh, because spiritual pride is so subtle, and we don't see it as spiritual pride. But I need to be faithful. I'm getting a little bit older. I don't know how much longer I have, and people aren't teaching Christian experience sometimes at this depth. And I said to my wife last night that I could take one sermon and one book, and if I had a Sunday school in which I could apply the things, that would probably undo about half of the professions, and it would be Hippocrates Deficient in the Duty of Prayer by Jonathan Edwards, and I've talked about that sermon before, but also the grace and duty of being spiritually minded. That's just the beginning of what we want to see. If, in fact, we are in the last days, we don't know. And if judgment is going to come upon this country, which is why I read books like Preparation for Suffering by John Flavel or The Saint's Refuge by John Flavel, and especially that's why I read John Owen, we're in no spiritual frame that if suffering were to come upon us, in many cases, hearts would sink. First of all, we're such a material people. We're so affluent in this country anyway. And so any kind of intense suffering, I think, would undo many professors in our day in about 48 hours. Because their spiritual affections, wrought by the Holy Spirit, certainly wouldn't be described as, out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. The streams are dead. They've never really commenced because there really hasn't been this change. So let me quote John Owen here, and I'll try to talk about it, expand on it in such a way that people could understand what he is saying. Though I do recommend, and I have narrated this book, it is on my site, the narrated Puritan Unsermon Audio. But but at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, Outward means and occasions of such thoughts of spiritual things that do not prove to be spiritually minded. And when I compare this with Jonathan Edwards' treatise on the religious affections, there is a parallel here. Preaching of the word, exercise of gifts, prayer. How we may know whether our thoughts are spiritual things in prayer are truly spiritual thoughts, proving us to be spiritually minded. Such a means is preaching of the word itself. It is observed concerning many in the gospel that they heard it willingly. They received it with joy, and did many things gladly after the preaching of it. And we see the same thing exemplified in multitudes of professing Christians every day. But none of these things can be without many thoughts in the minds of such persons about the spiritual things of the word. So a person is sitting under a good sermon. Maybe it's a sermon on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and many thoughts can be raised merely upon the natural man, who would not feel something if an adequate description of what our Lord suffered on the cross and what crucifixion was would not elicit some kind of response in the mind, but did they originate by a force put upon the mind by the illustrations of the sermon itself, or did they begin with the affections of the heart and an inclination toward these things, and so the things that you feel are actually spiritual? Owen says none of these things can be without many thoughts in the minds of such persons about the spiritual things of the word, for they that are the effects of such thoughts and being worked or wrought in the minds of men will produce more of the same nature. Yet, the people that were hearing them were all hypocrites concerning whom these things are spoken and were never spiritually minded. And he is referring to the book of Ezekiel. They love to hear the word, but they don't do it. The cause of this miscarriage is given by our Savior in Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. He that received the seed in stony places that same person hears the word and then receives it with joy, but he doesn't have root in himself. He does endure for a while. Of course, in time of trial, our Lord says that he falls away. John Owen says, The good or spiritual thoughts that they have do not proceed from any principle in themselves. Neither do their affections nor do their thoughts of these things have any internal root in which they should grow. So it was with many who lived under the present dispensation of the gospel. They have thoughts of spiritual things continually suggested to them, and they do abide with them more or less, according as they are affected. For I don't speak of them who are either despisers of what they hear, or what the parable of the soils calls the wayside hears, who don't understand anything of what they hear, and immediately lose all sense of it. And, you know, if you've looked around or if you've talked to a, a number of people visiting or certain people in the congregation, some of the most intense and some of the most powerful preaching with pathos doesn't affect them. They shake it off. I know they're in any church that I've been in. All thoughts about it. But I speak of them who attend with some diligence and receive the word with some joy. These insensibly grow in knowledge and understanding, and therefore cannot be without some thoughts of spiritual things. However, for the most part, they are, but like waters that run after a shower of the rain, they pour out themselves, if they proceeded from some strong living spring, whereas indeed they have none at all. When once uh, showers are spent, their channel is dry. There is nothing in it but stones and dirt. I lived, I grew up in Glendive, Montana, and there was a creek that ran through our neighborhood. In Montana, you probably say creek. But anyway, after a good rain or snow runoff, the creek looked like any other mountain stream. It was flowing abundantly. Sometimes when there was any kind of flooding, it would come up to the brim, to the bank. But after a while, in a semi-arid climate like eastern Montana was, that creek was dry. Owen says, when the doctrine of the word falls on such persons in showers of rain, it gives a course sometimes greater, sometimes less, to their thoughts about spiritual things. But they don't have an internal well. That creek doesn't come from a source that is constant, maybe a lake, or from continual melting snows from the mountains like you see in western Montana. Owen says, therefore, 
After a while, their minds are dried up from such thoughts. Nothing remains in them but earth, and that, perhaps, foul and dirty. It must be observed that the best of men, the most holy and spiritually minded, may have, nay, they ought to have their thoughts about spiritual things excited, multiplied, and confirmed by the preaching of the word. It is one end of its dispensation, one principle of it in them by whom it is received. But it's what John Owen says about spiritual gifts, and we make a lot on spiritual gifts in our day. And uh, some of these people who are not cessationists make much of spiritual gifts. But what are the spiritual gifts? So this is a part of this that I really wanted to get to. Spiritual thoughts may be raised in a person in his own duty, in his private devotions, by the exercise of his gifts when there is no acting of grace in them at all. For they lead and guide the mind to such things as are the manner of prayer, that is, spiritual things. Gifts, spiritual gifts, are nothing but a spiritual improvement of our natural faculties or abilities. So God gives gifts to a person. And because it's just an improvement of the natural faculties, it isn't spiritual fruit. It doesn't arise from a new disposition. The Holy Spirit improves the natural faculties. So, a reprobate can experience this. Judas did. He had spiritual gifts. John Owen says, A man cannot speak or utter anything but what proceeds from his rational faculties, by his invention or memory, or both, managed in and by his thoughts, unless he speak by rote, and that which is not rational. What therefore proceeds from a man's rational faculty and by the exercise of his gifts that his thoughts must be exercised about. A man may read a long prayer that expresses spiritual things, and yet never have one spiritual thought arise in his mind about them. For there is no exercise of any faculty of his mind required to such reading, but only to attend to the words that are read. This, I say, may be so. I don't say that it is always so, or that it must be so. But, as was said, in the exercise of spiritual gifts, it is impossible, but there must be an exercise of the reason, by invention, judgment, and memory, and consequently thoughts of spiritual things. Yet, they all may be merely occasional, from the present external performance of the duty of prayer, without any living spring or exercise of grace. In such a course may men of tolerable gifts continue all their days to the satisfaction of themselves and others. That's what's so deceiving about this, and I'll talk about it in a minute. I'll give an illustration. And it deceives both them that pray and their own souls and the people that hear them. This being evident from the Bible and experience, an inquiry may be made upon this as to our concern in these things, especially of those who have received spiritual gifts of their own, and of them also in some degree who usually enjoy the gifts of others in this duty. For it may be asked how we shall know whether the thoughts which we have as spiritual things in and upon prayer arise from gifts only, those of our own or other men's given occasion to them, or are influenced from a living principle, a spring of grace in our hearts. A case this is, however, by some it may be apprehended of great importance, and which would require much time to fully resolve. Someone is saying, I'm only covering the surface. I'm not really getting into the depths of this. He says it deserves to be studied more extensively. 
But Owen says, For there is nothing in which the refined sort of hypocrites do more deceive themselves than others, nothing in which some men give themselves more countenance in the indulgence of their lusts, than by this part of the form of godliness, when they lack the power of it. And besides, it is that in which the best of believers ought to keep a diligent watch over themselves in every particular example of the performance of this duty. With respect to this, in a special manner, they to watch unto prayer. If they are at any time negligent in this, they may rest in a bare exercise of their gifts, when on a due examination and trial, they do not have any evidence of the acting of grace and what they have done. I shall therefore, with what brevity I can, give a resolution to this inquiry and to this end. Observe. It is an ancient complaint that spiritual things are filled with great obscurity and difficulty, and it is true. Not that there is any such thing in themselves, for they all come forth from the Father of lights and are full of light, order, beauty, and wisdom. And light and order are the only means in which anything makes a discovery of itself. But the ground of all darkness and difficulty in these things lies in ourselves. We can more clearly and steadily see and behold the moon and the stars than we can see the sun when it shines in its greatest luster. It is not because there is more light in the moon and stars than in the sun, but because the light of the sun is greater than our visive faculty can directly bear and behold. So we can more clearly discover the truth and distinct nature of things moral and natural than we can of things that are heavenly and spiritual. Not that there is more substance or reality in them, but because the ability of our understanding is more suited to the comprehension of them, the others are above us. We know but in part, and our minds are liable to be hindered and disordered in their apprehension of spiritual things. Spiritual things are things that are heavenly and spiritual by ignorance, temptations, and prejudices of all sorts. In nothing are men more subject to mistakes than in the application of things to themselves and a the judgment of their own interest in them. Fear self-love, with the prevalence of temptations and corruptions, engage their powers to darken the light of the mind and to pervert its judgment. In no case does the deceitfulness of the heart or of sin, which is all one, more act itself. So you have a multitude, and they say peace to themselves, to whom God does not speak peace, and some who are children of light yet walk in darkness. So is that fervent prayer of the apostle for help in this case, Ephesians 1, 15-19. There is also a great similitude between temporary faith and that which is saving and durable, and between gifts and real graces in their operations. In other words, there is a great deal of difference between the spiritual gifts which are just improvements of the natural principles, the ability to speak well, the ability to recall things, retention, and some even preach with what appears like pathos, but it isn't arising from a new principle that is within them. In no case does the deceitfulness of the heart, or of sin, which is all one more act itself. There is also a great similitude between temporary faith, and that which is saving and durable, and between spiritual gifts and graces in their operations. It is acknowledged, therefore, that without the special light and conduct of the Spirit of God, no man can make such a judgment of his state and of his actions as shall be a, a stable foundation of giving glory to God, and of obtaining peace to his own soul. And therefore the greatest part of mankind constantly deceive themselves in thee things. But ordinarily, under this blessed conduct and the search of ourselves and the concerns of our duty, we may come to a satisfaction 
whether they are influenced by faith and have real grace exercised in them, especially this duty of prayer, or whether it derived from the power of our natural faculties raised by light and spiritual gifts only, and so whether our spiritual thoughts in them spring from a vital principle of grace called a new man, or whether they come from occasional impressions on the mind by the performance of the duty itself. If men are willing to deceive themselves or to hide themselves from themselves, to walk with God at all peradventures, to leave all things at a hazard, to put off all trials to that at the last day, and so never call themselves to an account as to the nature of their spiritual duties in any particular instance, it is no wonder if they neither do nor can make any distinction in this manner as to the true nature of their thoughts in their spiritual duties. So let me give an example of this so that you can better understand what John Owen is aiming at. We have this men's prayer meeting. And so to an uneducated ear listening to this, it sounds very spiritual. Sometimes we think elevation in prayer and excitement in pouring forth a number of verses, which when numerous verses from the Bible are quoted in a prayer, people say, that man is really spiritual. And yet, I listen to this, and to me, and I could be wrong, but it sounds like mere affectation. It sounds like the passion in which he is praying uh, is real pathos from the fruit of the Spirit flowing in his innermost being. And this is a thing that we have, even if I am being censorious in this, and there's not enough of a judgment of charity, it's something that we really need to be careful of in our fervency, in our public prayers. And it's not just one person. It's a person here, and it's a person there. And they try to really pour forth themselves. And what really deceives these people, I've gone through this myself, I have made this mistake myself, is when somebody comes to you and pats you on the back and talks about how powerful your prayer is. I was watching one guy, we were having a module for our seminary, and it was an evening service, and this guy poured forth a profuseness of prayer. And I remember when he first got here, people thought, this guy really had a gift. And some of these seminary students who didn't know him, they kind of pat him on the back and they congratulate him for his prayer. And it's all that he could do to try to stay humble because he become elated. Uh, spiritual pride is apt to rear its head when such things as praise are heaped upon it. And yet, this is what I'm afraid of. And this is what John Owen is talking about, that this fervency, this affectation is mistaken for real pathos. And maybe the person does have a spiritual gift, a spiritual gift of prayer. However, the fruit of the Spirit is not at the foundation. So with that illustration, maybe you'll better understand John Owen's warning. And we must, to our own diligent inquiry, fervent prayers to God, that he would search and try us as to our sincerity in them and discover to us the true frame of our hearts. In this, we have an express example in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. John Owen says, this is the only way in which we may have the Spirit of God witnessing to our sincerity with our own spirits. 
there is need of calling in divine assistance in this manner, both from the importance of it and from its difficulty, God alone knowing fully and perfectly what is in the hearts of men. John Owen says, I don't have any doubt but that in the impartial use of these means, a man may come to an assured satisfaction in his own mind, such as wherein he shall not be deceived, whether he, his animation and the quickening of the thoughts of spiritual things and his duties come with inward vital grace, or whether they are impressions on his mind by the occasion of the duty. A duty this is of great importance and necessity. Now, hypocrisy has made so great an inroad on profession, and, quote, spiritual gifts have deflowered grace in its principal operations. No persons are in greater danger of walking at hazard with God than those who live in the exercise of spiritual gifts and duties to their own satisfaction and that of others, for they may countenance themselves with an appearance of everything that should be in them in reality and power, when there is nothing of it in them, and so it has fallen out. We have seen many earnest in the exercise of this gift, who have turned vile and debauched apostates. Some have been known to live in sin and in indulgence of their lusts, and yet to abide constant in their duties, Isaiah 1, 10-15. I think at this point, there is an illustration of this in Thoughts on Religious Experience that is so good. I want to read it from Archibald Alexander. Quote, I remember a distinct recollection of another case of a still earlier date, and this is in Chapter 1, Thoughts on Religious Experience. An obscure youth the son of Christian parents, in a time of spiritual awakening or in a time of revival, seemed to have his attention drawn to the concerns of his soul, so that he seriously and diligently attended on all religious meetings. He had the appearance of deep humility, and though free to speak when interrogated, was in no respect forward or self-sufficient. Indeed, he was scarcely known or noticed by the religious people who were in the habit of attending the prayer meetings. It happened that on an inclement evening, very few were present for the prayer meeting, and none of those who were accustomed to take a part in leading the devotional exercises. The person at whose house a meeting was held, not wishing to dismiss the few who were present with a single prayer, asked this youth if he would not attempt to pray for them or to make a prayer. He readily assented, and performed his service with so much fervency, fluency, and propriety of expression that all who heard it were astonished. From the time he was called upon more frequently than any other and often in the public congregation, for some people preferred his prayers to any sermons. And I must say that I never heard anyone pray who seemed to me to have such a gift, a spiritual gift of prayer. The most appropriate passages of scripture seemed to come to him in rapid succession, as if by inspiration. Now the common cry was that he ought to be taken from the trade which he was learning, for he was an apprentice, and put him to studies for the ministry. The thing demanded by so many was not difficult to accomplish. He began a regular course of academical studies, and his progress, though not extraordinary, was respectable. But alas, how weak is man, how deceitful is the heart. This young man soon began to exhibit evidence too plain. The conceit and self-confidence were taking root and growing very rapidly. He became impatient of opposition arrogant toward his superiors, and unwilling to yield to reproof administered in the most paternal spirit. When the time came to enter upon trials for the ministry, the presbytery to which he applied refused to receive him under their care. But this solemn rebuff, 
Instead of humbling him, only provoked his indignation, and as if in despite of them, he turned at once to the study of another profession in which he might have succeeded had he remained moral and temperate in his habits. But falling into bad company, he became dissipated, and soon came without any known reformation to a premature end. Now suppose this man had been permitted to enter into the ministry. The probability is that though his unchristian temper would have been and done much evil, yet he would have continued in the sacred office to his dying day. Let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall, in quote, Archibald Alexander, Thoughts on Religious Experience. I have opened before me now the book, Religious Cases of Conscience, which I often make reference to in my teaching. Religious Cases of Conscience answered in an evangelical manner by the Reverend Samuel Pike and Samuel Hayward. And this is the very first question. It's called Case 1. How may we distinguish between the workings of natural affection and a real exercise of grace in our religious duties? Let me quote. This serious question recently came into my hands in these words. Upon reading it, I could not help but see that it contained a query of the greatest importance, and therefore thought it might be very proper to take it into consideration and give it as clear a solution as lay in my power. There are many who go to or come from gospel ordinances entirely obdurate or unaffected, careless and having no real regard for the power or spirit of religion and aiming at no more than the form of it. So such as these, a present query is an indifferent matter, and the very indifference is evident proof that the state of their persons or the frame of their hearts is really sad and deplorable, though they don't know it, or are utterly unconcerned about it. But there are others when they attend, upon, or engage in religious duties such as reading their Bible, hearing, singing, and praying, have their affections strongly moved, so that these persons can and do frequently weep under ordinances, for grief or for joy. They often attend the means of grace with much pleasure in their countenances, or you see it in their faces, and many tears in their eyes. These appearances, I confess, are very pleasing and promising in an assembly, and sometimes they indicate that the Spirit of God is at work in their hearts. Many Christians are ready to take it for granted that those ordinances are truly beneficial, where the passions are thus stirred or agitated, or moved, and where this is not the case, to esteem those as lost opportunities. But here I must observe that we have great reason to be suspicious of ourselves, and we should not make this a rule by which to judge the usefulness of a gospel ordinance. But let us make a further inquiry whether these motions within us, or these impressions upon us, are the workings of natural affection only as they certainly may be, or are they the real exercise of spiritual grace? And this is a very question under consideration. Many, I fear, are awfully deceived with the mere workings of nature by thinking they are sufficient evidences of the presence and blessings of God as his own institutions, while on the other hand, many are groundlessly discouraged because they don't feel such strong emotions as others do thinking that this is an evident token of the barrenness and uselessness of ordinances. That we may not be deceived or unreasonably discouraged by these means, let me therefore now attempt a serious and plain solution for this question, for this query, looking up to the Divine Spirit to make the whole clear to your understandings and apply it close to your consciences. I would offer the following considerations as preparatory to a direct answer and then proceed to the solution itself. Observe number one. 
that the affections of the mind may be excited in a merely natural way under divine ordinances. The proof of this point will be best introduced by endeavoring to set before you some of those ways in which mere nature may be impressed or raised under the means of grace. The affections of the mind may be excited by a natural impression. Thus, when a person is attending upon the ministrations of the word, he may find himself moved only by the beauty of the style, or the propriety of the language, or the loudness or tone of the preacher's voice, or the apparent fervency of his address or of his sermon. Such circumstances as these may move the affections in a purely mechanical way, without being attended with any spiritual or saving effects. For by this, only the animal nature is touched, or the speculative powers employed in a pleasing or disagreeable way. This seems to have been the case with the hearers of the great prophet Ezekiel, as mentioned in Ezekiel 33, verse 32. Indeed, to them you are like a very lovely song of someone who has a pleasant voice, and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but don't do them. Let none therefore conclude that ordinances are profitable to them merely because they are pleasing and delightful to their ears. For the manner of the preacher's address may make a natural impression upon his hearers, a natural impression, not a spiritual impression, because they arise from without. The impressions or the effects of his hearing do not come from his inclination and new nature from within. So, the preacher's address may make a natural impression upon his hearers without having any spiritual or useful effect. The affections may sometimes be raised by a natural sympathy. We've talked about sympathy before, which regards not merely the manner of the preacher, but also the matter which he delivers. If the preacher himself appears very earnest in his address, and very much affected by what he delivers, this often effectually works on the natural affections of his hearers, by way of sympathy. If he appears concerned, they feel a sympathetic concern of his hearers by way of sympathy. Uh, here's a footnote for you. If you want to learn a little bit more about sympathy, I've done a number of studies, but look up a narration called Spurious Religious Excitements by Robert Louis Dabney in his Discussions, Volume 3. And Archibald Alexander treats this in his thoughts on religious experience, sympathy during times of revival. But let me go on. If the pastor is setting forth something in very expressive language that is very affecting in its own nature, then here the power of oratory, his oratorical abilities, his ability to communicate well, produces in the minds of the hearers a sympathy with that which he is relating or describing. Thus, if the minister is setting forth in very mournful strains the sufferings and agonies of Christ, his relation of these tragic occurrences may move the affections of the people merely in a sympathetic way, without making any saving or spiritual impression on the hearts. And there may be no more in these workings of affection now what most persons, I believe, are obliged to feel when attentively reading that memorable history of Joseph and his brethren, by which the affections of joy and sorrow, resentment and pleasure are alternately excited in a way that is purely natural. The affections are sometimes raised under ordinances from a purely natural or notional inclination, 
A person may meet with something in a sermon which suits his taste, or falls in with his previous sentiments. It is natural for us to be pleased with, and fond of, our own opinions, and therefore whenever we meet with what corresponds to them, we are necessarily pleased and delighted with it. Let me give an example of this. Everybody knows, whatever they think of him, that Donald Trump is very popular. I have no opinion of that. I'm not expressing an opinion. I may agree or disagree that he should be popular. But what is so interesting is the mega crowd is very stirred up with the things that they are saying. And it elicits some kind of affection, some kind of response, some kind of conviction. But nobody would say that that is a Christian experience or that this is a church meeting in which they are moved by the fruit of the Spirit. It's working merely on the natural passions that we are in agreement with what we are hearing. The affections are sometimes raised under ordinances from a purely natural or notional inclination. A person may meet with something in a sermon which suits his taste or falls within his previous sentiments. This is what we are talking about. On the other hand, we may meet with something in a sermon that may disgust or displease us, and this may excite corresponding affections. We may be ready to esteem these affections as a true zeal for the truth, in opposition to error. Yet, after all these emotions of the mind, there may be nothing spiritual or savory brought home to our hearts, nor any working of true grace in the soul. Once more, whether the affections are raised more or less may very much depend upon our natural constitutions, for we know that some are of a softer, tenderer, and more affectionate disposition than others, and these are more easily touched and moved by what occurs in an ordinance than others, and they are more frequently melted into tears. Therefore, this must not always be ascribed to a greater degree of the Spirit's operation, since it may frequently be accounted for by a cause that is merely natural. Thus we see all natural impressions, natural sympathy, natural inclination, and natural constitution may be the sole cause or occasion of raising the affections under preaching or under an ordinance. End quote. And this is just going along what Jonathan Edwards is saying in his signs that neither prove nor disprove that a person has actually been born again. I'll give you an example of this. Jonathan Edwards says, number one, the first of twelve. It is no sign one way or the other that religious affections are very great, or they are raised very high. Some are ready to condemn all high affections of persons appear to have their religious affections raised to an extraordinary pitch. They are prejudiced against them and determine that they are delusions without further inquiry. But if it be as has been proved that true religion lies very much in the religious affections, then it follows that if there be a great deal of true religion, there will be great religious affections. If true religion in the hearts of men be raised to a great height, divine and holy affections will be raised to a great height as well. But he says it is no evidence that religious affections of, are of a spiritual and a gracious nature because they are great. It is very manifest by the Holy Scripture, our sure and infallible rule to judge of things of this nature, that there are religious affections. There are feelings that affect our affections, which are very high, that are not spiritual and saving. The Apostle Paul speaks of affections in the Galatians, which had been exceedingly elevated, 
in which he manifestly speaks of, is fearing that they were vain and had come to nothing, whereas the blessedness he spoke of, for I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. He tells them he was afraid of them, lest he had bestowed upon them labor in vain. So the children of Israel were greatly affected with God's mercy to them, when they had seen how wonderfully he wrought for them at the Red Sea, where they sang God's praise, so they soon forgot his works. So they, the Israelites, were greatly affected again at Mount Sinai, when they saw the marvelous manifestations God made of himself there, and seemed mightily engaged in their minds with great forwardness. They made answer when God proposed his holy covenant to them, saying, All that the Lord has spoken will we do and be obedient. But how soon was there an end to all this mighty forwardness and engagingness of affection? How quickly were they turned aside after other gods, rejoicing and shouting around their golden calf? So great multitudes who were affected with the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead were elevated to a high degree. And he made a mighty ado when Jesus presently after he entered into Jerusalem, and they exceedingly magnified Christ as though the ground were not good enough for the donkey who rode to tread upon, and therefore to cut branches of palm trees and strewed them in the way, yea, pulled off their garments and spread them in the way, and cried with loud voices, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, so as to make the whole city ring again and put all into an uproar. We learn by the evangelist John that the reason why the people made this ado was because they were affected with the miracle of raising of Lazarus. Here was a vast multitude crying Hosanna on this occasion, so that it gave occasion to the Pharisees to say, Behold, the world has gone after him, John 12, verse 19. But Christ had at that time very few true disciples. And how quickly was this ado at an end? Although this nature is quelled and dead, when this Jesus stands bound with a mock robe and a crown of thorns to be derided, spit upon, scourged, condemned, and executed, indeed there was a great and loud outcry concerning him among the multitude then as well as before, but of a very different kind it is not then, Hosanna, Hosanna, but crucify him, crucify him, end quote. The quoting John Owen. Where thoughts of spiritual things and prayer are occasioned only in the way before described, such prayers will not be a means of spiritual growth to the soul. They don't make the soul humble, holy, and watchful, and diligent in universal obedience. Grace will not thrive under the greatest constancy in such duties. It is an astonishing thing to see how under frequency of prayer and a seeming fervency in them, many of us are at a stand as to visible thriving in the fruits of grace and it is to be feared without any increase of the strength. In the root of it, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. He is the same as in the days of old when their fathers cried to him and were delivered, when they trusted in him and were not confounded. Why is it then that there is so much prayer amongst us, and so little success, I don't speak with respect to the outward dispensations of divine providence and afflictions or persecutions in which God always acts in a way of sovereignty, and oftentimes gives the most useful answer to our prayers by denying our request. I intend only whereof the psalmist gives the expression in Psalm 138, verse 3, In the day when I cried, you answered me, and you strengthened me with the strength in my soul. Where prayers are effectual, 
It will bring in spiritual strength. But the prayers of many seem to be very spiritual and to express all conceivable supplies of grace and they are persisted in with constancy. God forbid we should judge them to be hypocritical and holy and sincere. Yet, there is a defect somewhere which should be inquired after, for they are not so answered as that they who pray them are strengthened with strength in their souls. There is not that spiritual thriving, that growth and grace, which might be expected to accompany such supplications. I know that a man may pray often, and may pray sincerely and frequently, for a special mercy grace, or deliverance from a particular temptation, and yet no spiritual supply of strength to his own experience comes in by this. So it was in the case of Paul who prayed three times for the removal of his temptation. God had other holy ends to accomplish on his soul. But how persons should continue in prayer in general, according to the mind of God, so far as can be outwardly discovered, and yet do not thrive at all as to spiritual strength in their souls is hard to be understood, and which is yet more astonishing, and abide in the duty of prayer. And that was constancy in their families and otherwise, and yet live in known sins. Whatever spiritual thoughts such men have, and by their prayers they are not spiritually minded. Shall we now say that all such persons are gross hypocrites, such as know that they do but mock God and man? Know that they have not desires nor aims after the things which they mention in their own prayers, but do these things either for some corrupt end, or at best to satisfy their convictions? Could we thus resolve the whole difficulty of the case? were taken off. In other words, we would understand why. For such double-minded men have no reason to think that they shall receive anything of the Lord, as James speaks of. Chapter 1, verse 7. Indeed, they do not. They never act faith with reference to their own prayers, but it is not so with all of this sort. Some judge themselves sincere and in good earnest in their prayers, not without some hopes and expectations of success. I will not say of all such persons that they are among the number of them concerning whom the wisdom of God says, Because I called and they refused, they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Proverbs 1, 24 and 28. And although we may say to such persons in general, Either leave your sinning off or leave your praying, yet in particular I would not advise any such person to leave off his praying until he has left off his sin. This word to advise a sick man to use no remedies until he were well cured. Who knows but that the Holy Spirit, who works when and how he pleases, may take a time to animate these lifeless prayers and make them a means of deliverance from the power of this sin. In the meantime, the fault and guilt is wholly their own, who have effected a consistency between a way of sinning and a course in praying. And it arises from this that they have never labored to fill up their requests with grace. What there has been of earnestness or diligence in their prayers has been from a force put upon them by their convictions and their fears. For no man was ever absolutely prevailed on by sin who prayed for deliverance according to the mind of God. In other words, John Owen is saying that through convictions, legal convictions, legal fears, not evangelical fears, a person may be stirred up to pray, probably because he's afraid either of God's punishment or he is afraid of going to hell. This can put a fervency in our prayers, but that's not necessarily from grace. It's for grace, but grace isn't at the root of it.
Earnestness and appearing fervency in prayer is to the outward delivery of the words of it. Yea, though the mind be so affected as to contribute much to this, will not of themselves prove that the thoughts of men in this arise from an internal spring of grace. There is a fervency of spirit in prayer that is one of the best properties of it, being an earnest acting of love, faith, and desire. But there is a fervency in which the mind itself may be affected that may arise from some other causes. And from that point, this is chapter 3 of The Grace and Duty of Being Spiritually Minded, he talks about those other causes.